Join me in your Bibles this morning in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3. Can't get this. Boom, there we go. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, just as a quick reminder, from chapter 3, verse 1, all the way down through about verse 11 of chapter 4 is all about preparation. So Matthew just laying the foundation for the preparation of Christ's ministry, helping us to understand who he is and what he is going to be doing, Um, revealing, unveiling, unmasking, declaring who is this king of the Jews, the real king of Israel, the Messiah. And so we have this amazing moment in chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, where we see the baptism of Christ. And so Matthew chapter 3, I'm going to pick up in verse 13, read down through the end of the chapter. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. If we think through the kings and leaders of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, you really have a kind of rogues gallery of characters. Uh, Abraham uh, famously shows an immense amount of cowardice and deception when he lies about who his wife is when they go to Egypt because he's afraid. And yet he's the same guy who shows immense courage and gets together a group of people to go rescue his nephew Lot at one point. So he's this mixed bag of courage and cowardice of truth and deception. You have Jacob, who is known for cheating and manipulating people. His entire uh, young life, is the, the young years of his life, is spent duping and deceiving and conniving and manipulating those around him. Gideon, by the time you get to the judges, is incredibly slow to obey. We all get excited about the... putting the fleece out, but this is God's mercy and kindness to him. Three times he's resisting when God is clearly saying what to do. He's astoundingly slow to obey and incredibly afraid. Samson, the strongest man who ever lived, um, another judge, he's supposed to be a Nazarite, and yet he violates all of his Nazarite vows and uh, is just consumed. Really, he he is like the picture of a man consumed for his own lust, his own desires, his own ends. If you get even to the greatest king of Israel, King David, he is a murderer and an adulterer. And so you just have this constant mixed bag of leaders. And so even the best of their leaders, uh, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lives, uh, through his uh, incredible infidelity, uh, both with just a, a harem of concubines and wives, brings idolatry in and really almost becomes the law of the land under him. Manasseh, while he is the most evil king that ever ruled Israel, sacrificed his own son to idols in the valley of Hinnom. 
Uh, later, he repents, but just a wicked man. So you just have this track record of, of rough guys. So it makes you wonder, who were the Jews really looking for for the king? What were they anticipating? What would they have thought of? And so we know from the Gospels, and uh, if, you've, if you've been around church life, you already know this, and, and if you haven't, that's fine. But what you will discover, then what you'll discover on the journey with us is that Jesus is not at all the guy they're looking for. He, he's not at all the kind of king or messiah that they want or that they anticipated. He doesn't lead a military revolution. They were looking for a, a top-notch strategist in general who would deliver them from the Romans and ultimately finally establish Israel as its own standing nation, free and inhabiting the land that God had promised to Abraham. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't come from this obviously magnificent heritage. Uh, we know he's from the line of David, and it goes all the way back to Abraham. So he's a Jew, and he's in the kingly line. That's demonstrated in both the Gospels of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. And, and yet he's known to them as the son of a carpenter, the illegitimate son of a carpenter. There was even rumors that his mother Mary had had an affair with a Samaritan and that they were hiding that reality. So he doesn't come from this magnificent heritage that they would have wanted. He isn't wealthy. He isn't rich by any stretch of the imagination. He is not completely impoverished. He would have been, as best as we could uh, associate with today, lower middle class, uh, as with a father who's a tradesman and having been raised in the same trade. He doesn't have this compelling persona that immediately wins everyone over. Uh, the question has often been asked, particularly over the last 100 years in leadership studies, are leaders born or are they made? Um, the average height of the kind of person that most people say they want as a leader is six foot. That's average height. But the average height of an American male is something like 5'9". In other words, they want somebody they can literally, physically look up to. Um, it's a male instead of a female. We, we have all of these mindsets of what a leader should look like and who they should be. And they should be an extrovert and they should be charismatic and they should have this just amazing personality that wins people over. We've all met people like this. They walk into a room and they're everybody's friend. Jesus is none of that. He draws people to him, but with his words, he drives them away. He is not intrinsically handsome or attractive. He experiences sickness and sorrow and difficulties. He's not at all what they were looking for, and it makes you wonder, who are they really looking for? What were they watching for? When you consider who they'd had in their past, you realize that they were up against it to try to figure out what would this next king look like. Jesus is a lot of things to different people then. So, so they're looking for one thing, and they get something very different, and because of that, they miss who he is. But now we're a couple thousand years removed, and so we have the Bible, and uh, we've had established Christian religion for 2,000 years. And so now we have this Jesus that the Bible declares to us. But as we will study, he's not at all the Jesus that people really want. He is the Jesus they need. And so people are then prone to try to make Jesus both. I want him to be what I need, but I also want to make him what I want. Thomas Jefferson famously did this. We were talking about this Around our dinner table this week, one of my children in their history classes, Thomas Jefferson, came up, and the fact that he was a deist. And so deists just roughly, philosophically believe that God has created all things, but much like a clockmaker, starts the clock, winds it up, and then just lets it run, takes his hands off of it, so whatever happens, happens. And so Thomas Jefferson is a famous deist, and so Thomas Jefferson was burdened for people to 
hold to the Christianity. He called it Christianity, the Christianity he believed. And so the Christianity he believed in, there, was no mir- there were no miracles, there was no resurrection, and Jesus isn't God. And so Thomas Jefferson famously went through, and he used, I think it was either three or four different translations, Latin, Greek, English. He's a brilliant man, and he, he cut out any references to those realities, the deed of Christ, the resurrection, or miracles. Because he was a deist. He believed that God doesn't insert himself into this world. And then he wrote his own book. We famously, people call it the Jefferson Bible. That was not the title he gave it. He gave it the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And so Thomas Jefferson didn't believe in original sin. And so what he wanted to do was he wanted to make the Jesus that we all need is a moral teacher, a good man. So we should follow his goodness and his morality. But far apart from the spiritual truth that you are dead in your sins, you are judged by God on your way to an eternal hell and you desperately need a savior and a ransom. He didn't want that. And at some point, though, when we are talking about Jesus, we have to ask this question. If we're not telling everything about somebody, are we really talking about them at all? If we leave out core aspects of their identity, or is it even this person? What if I were to say, I'm going to talk to you about someone who was a charismatic leader, an incredible orator, um, had a Jewish heritage, was a fairly weak and failed artist, and somewhat, somewhat of a trained uh, military guy, but not a chief strategist. But I never told you he also was a homicidal maniac who led to the slaughter of millions of Jews in World War II, and his name was Adolf Hitler. If I leave out that core aspect, have I talked about him at all? Or what if I were to tell you I want to talk to you about a theologian, a famed theologian who unfortunately um, later in his life wrote some incredibly anti-Semitic material. Actually, he wrote the anti-Semitic material in large part that was used by the Nazi party to convince the German Lutheran church to join with them. He had violated and rejected his religious vows that he grew up with, uh, he loved beer and relaxation and, and yet was an incredible writer. But I don't also tell you he stood for truth, nailed 95 theses to a doorpost in the church of Wittenberg, and his name was Martin Luther. At some point, if we leave out the core truths about who somebody is, we're not talking about them at all, are we? And so when we talk about Christ, when we talk about King Jesus, what we really want to talk about is the king we need But if we're going to be blessed by the ministry of King Jesus, we must know the true King Jesus. (laughs) Who is he really? We don't have the luxury of the intellectual dishonesty of a Thomas Jefferson to just pick and choose what we want and what we like and what we don't like. There are things about Jesus that will confront every one of us in this room. And there are also things about Jesus that will bless every one of us in this room. And, and so what I want to encourage you to do is to receive from the word of God what it says about who Jesus is and how he functions. The same Jesus who will take little children into his lap is the same Jesus who will form a whip and whip people out of the temple. He's not, uh, he, he's not schizophrenic, right? This this is all the same Jesus. The same Jesus who will come down off the Mount of Transfiguration 
and will cast the demon out of this boy, this demon who inhabits him in such a way that makes the boy suicidal, and the father's at the end of his rope, and he's desperate. The same Jesus who will cast that demon out of him is the same Jesus who will look at Peter, perhaps one of the closest disciples, and say, get thee behind me, Satan. We don't get to pick and choose the parts of Jesus we like or don't like, or are convenient or comfortable for us and are not, because the only way we can actually be blessed by the ministry of King Jesus is to know the true King Jesus. And that is what Matthew's on mission to do. He is not trying to hide things. He's not trying to shield things. But in these few verses, 13 through 17, Matthew is incredibly setting the stage for what we need to know most about Jesus and what is most critical about him. We have this massive gap in time that takes place from chapter 2 to chapter 3, a gap of some 30 years or more. We don't really know when Mary, Joseph and Mary uh, left. We don't know when they went to Egypt, and we don't know when they came back from Egypt. Sometime during Jesus' uh, childhood. So it could have been as early as him only being a few months old. It could have been as late as him being a few years old when they left to go to Egypt. It could be a year or so from when they leave Egypt. It could have been two to four years from when they leave. We, don't, we actually don't know. We have these gaps historically because of who the rulers are that we can kind of bookend and say it's in this time frame. But then we have silence until now. And, and the other gospel writers tell us that Jesus is about 30 years of age when he begins his ministry. And they even say it that way. He's about 30. So maybe he's 31. Maybe he's 29. Maybe he's 28. Maybe he's 32. Um, we, we all talk this way in general terms. What we do know is we've got a gap of like 20 plus years, 25 years or more, where we're not told anything about who Jesus is. We're not told anything of what kind of child he is or how he functions. I don't know why my computer wants to do this this morning. But hey. And so we want to first of all understand the man. And we can really function our way through this, this text this morning that what Matthew is going to put on display is what's most important for us to know about Jesus, and that is that he is fully man and that he is fully God. And these are critical. <laughs> That's what happens when somebody doesn't want you to preach about King Jesus. That's my guess. You may not get a prezi this morning, and you'll survive, hopefully. We'll try it, but we'll see what happens. If it starts doing the glitchy thing, I can't, I can't look up there and see that, so I'll turn it off if, if we get to that. So when you want to know things about Jesus, there, there are so many things that you or I, I, I would presume, would want to know. Questions that we would have about him. What really was his childhood and teenage years like? Um, some people love then to go to the Apocrypha, which tells a few stories of his childhood. They're not reliable. They're, they're not trustworthy. What was he like? And, and Matthew doesn't, none of the gospel writers give us any of that. We know there's enough of a history that John the Baptist looks at him and he recognizes he's more righteous than I am. There was the familial connection. They're cousins. They would have been aware, he would have been aware of Jesus and Jesus would have been aware of John. There would have been some knowledge and some there's some knowing of one another. He would have known what Jesus, we don't know. He doesn't tell us, Jesus, is he funny? Is he witty? Was he quiet or shy? Was he an extrovert or an introvert? Or is Jesus loud? Is he creative? Is he reserved or commanding? When he was building furniture with his father, did he carve into it or did he just make the basics? There are some aspects of Jesus, just of his personality and who he is that we can pick up along the way but none of them are what is most important about him. 
What was most important about him are the two things he must be, fully man and fully God. He must be those because only a Messiah who is fully man and fully God could ultimately be our rescuer. And this is what Matthew wants to put on display at his baptism. So again, verses 13 and 14, and we'll look at a few truths about this. Then Jesus came down from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, by you, and do you come to me? The first thing I want you to understand about Jesus is as a man in his humanity, he's a man of the people. He's not a man who lives very distant from them. He's a man who is among them. Uh, when we think of being a man of the people, you might think of someone who's very, very distant. You might think of English royalty. They are very distant from their subjects. There, there's this massive gap. Or uh, if you ever see the red carpets of a movie premiere, uh, you have all the security, and then you have the paparazzi, and then there's people screaming in the background. Uh, when I took my daughter a number of years ago to see a play, uh, we went to see Frozen, the Broadway play up in New York City. And afterwards, she wanted to meet some of the actors and actresses. And so they have this line, and they have all these little roped-off sections. And uh, because of the particular play, there was just a host of little girls all screaming and clamoring to get to Anna and Elsa. And, um, and you, but you're separate from them. And they are at the building, and there's a gap. And they can talk to who they want to talk to. There is a distance. Jesus, though, is with and among, lives in with the people, but in some very critical ways... He's identifying with them. Matthew's already quoted, John now is saying that he needs to be baptized by Jesus. Earlier, John had said that someone was coming that was greater than he was. And so he doesn't think he should baptize you. He doesn't think Jesus is at all worthy or needing of his baptism. Why? Now, I think in Christianity and in church life, um, and so whenever I have the opportunity to push against this, I, I want to, that people think there is something greater about up here than down there. And that there is this gap between clergy and congregant, or pastor and people. And they think in greater and less than kind of terms. And so I think people might even think about baptism sometimes that way. That like, because I baptize people, somehow in that moment, that's a declaration of greatness. And it's not. That would be a misunderstanding. I am a sheep who fulfills the office of a shepherd. Just like I'm a man who fulfills the office of being a husband and father. I am a sheep shepherd. I'm, I'm like coach player. I'm not greater. Um, that's what you can, <laughs> the old phrase, call me whatever you like, just don't call me late for dinner, right? Like, that's, that's why years ago I encouraged people to call me Steve. And, and I don't want anything in any way, as much as I can, this is for my own heart, as much as for your way of thinking, that I'm greater or better. I'm not. And so when John the Baptist says, you're, one's greater coming after me, and now I should baptize you instead of you baptize me, I think it'd be easy for us to be confused about what's happening in this moment. I think it'd be easy for us to import into this some kind of stratification, and so there's this greater, less than thing going on here. But that's actually not at all what's happening. And to understand that, you have to understand John's baptism. 
What is going on with John's baptism? John's baptism is all about a declaration of cleaning spiritually, righteous cleansing. And so this is, we know this because remember when the Pharisees and the Sadducees come down to be baptized, what does he say to them? No, I'm not going to baptize you. Bring me what? Fruits of repentance. It is a credo or confessional kind of baptism. In other words, it's based upon what you already believe. It's based upon what's already happened in you spiritually. This physical getting wet moment is simply an external declaration of an already present inner spiritual reality. The baptism doesn't save you. The baptism doesn't cleanse you, but it is a declaration you've been cleansed. So John is looking at Jesus and he's seeing his righteousness. And he's saying, there's no way I should baptize you. You are righteous and I am not. And so Jesus answers it. So then why does Jesus get baptized? I've already read the text. You know he actually gets baptized, right? John the Baptist at some point, he convinces him. He goes down the water. John baptizes him. He comes out of the water. The dove comes down, thundering voice from heaven. So then why does Jesus actually get baptized? If Jesus didn't need to be cleansed, why does he get baptized? If Jesus doesn't need to demonstrate repentance, why does he get baptized? Well, Jesus answers a question for us. Verse 15. Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Okay, question answered. Next point. I don't know about you, when I read that text, I'm like, record scratch. I'm going to need to study that some more. I'm going to need to unpack that a little bit more. What gives? There is no prophecy that Jesus would be baptized. There's no Old Testament verse, and he will come and be baptized. What is Jesus talking about? It is all about Jesus identifying with and taking the place of humanity. The Messiah had to come and represent everybody. Every man, woman, and child. Every ethnicity, every cultural difference. He had to be the representative of all of humanity. Now, a true follower of God, a true Christian, is a person who has confessed their sin, repented from that sin. Those are two different things. Saying I'm a sinner and turning from your sin, two different things. They must be someone who confesses their sin. They must be someone who repents from their sin and who follows now after God. It is a process of I see who I am. I turn from who I am to follow now God in his righteousness. And then, as a demonstration that that is true about them, listen, what is true? That they are a follower of God and they own it before everybody. The demonstration of that, that God gives to us, is you get baptized. This is where, and we did a sermon series a number of years ago about credo baptism or believer's baptism as opposed to paedo baptism. So I'm not going to go down that trail. I simply would say this. This is where we dear, disagree with our dear dear brothers who would believe in infant baptism. They link infant baptism with circumcision. So they also believe it's a sign of following, but they say like the children of Israel were, bat, were circumcised eight days of age. It's okay because that's identification. This is, and this is 
I'm literally in 45 seconds, which just doesn't feel fair to anybody, but this is part of the sharp disagreement we would have. We would say, but the difference is in the church, the only ones who are part of the community truly are people who have confessed and repented of their sin. And you cannot do that as an infant. And so they are seeing a greater association with the family of God from the nation of Israel. We are seeing a greater difference in the church. That's a summation. Dear brothers in Christ, this is where we disagree. But it's important this morning because what Jesus is saying is this is the demonstration that I am the representative of all humanity. I am a follower of God. This is critical. Whereas you and I have to confess and repent and be forgiven to be cleansed, Jesus is coming to this already clean. He is demonstrating by his baptism his already present righteousness, but he's also representing all of us who would follow after God. All of humanity, every single person. In this moment, then, we see that Jesus is a man of the people. He is a man just like us, although sinless. Does this carry on, though? Absolutely. God is omniscient. So if you were to ask just objectively, would God understand what it's like when you're sick? He's omniscient. Yes. Would he understand what it's like when you're hurt? Yes. Would he understand what it's like when you're tired? Yes. Would he understand what it's like when you're heartbroken? Yes. When you've been betrayed? Yes. And yet he makes a huge deal out of the fact that Jesus came and he lived as a man. And so Jesus experientially knows, not just through the power of his omniscience and deity, but through his humanity, he knows what it's like to be hurt, to be sick, to suffer, to die, to be betrayed, to be humiliated, to be lied about. He understands all of those truths, and yet sinless. We're actually promised later in Hebrews that part of his empathetic compassion for us is proven by the fact that he suffered through living as fully man. In this moment, he is being baptized because he is demonstrating he is a man of the people. He identifies with and represents every single person who has ever lived. But it also points to the fact that he's a man of humble obedience. Jesus is shown to be a man of obedience. Followers of God are called to obey God. It's the root of our relationship with him. Jesus actually makes this very clear in John 15, 14. Later on in his wonderful sermon uh, in, in, the, in the Grove of Olives, uh, Garden of Gethsemane, the night before, or the night when he's ultimately arrested, in John 15, the through the vine and the branches, he says this incredible statement in John 15, 14. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. I've pointed out before that like, if one of our children were to come home and tell us that that's what their friends say, we would say that's no friend at all, right? Um, little Susie said I could be her friend if I would do whatever she tells me to do. Well, Susie doesn't want to be your friend. Susie wants to be your Lord. But Jesus says that language, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Submitting to the authority of someone else is not easy, and it demands humility. And so in that moment, what we are doing is we are saying, God, I can't be trusted with my own life or decisions because when I am on bent or on, on mission for my own life and decisions, I wreck it. I'm, I'm sinful by nature. I'm, I'm, 
I'm wicked, so I confess, I repent, I now want to follow you. I want to do whatever you say. You are God, not just in general objective truth that you're God, but you are God of my life. I will obey you. And that takes humility for anybody all the time to yield or to give up your autonomy to be submitted to another authority takes humility. That's why we don't, it's what we don't want to do. That's why in Proverbs it talks about those who want their own way. They have to isolate. They have to remove themselves. And we all do this in our sin, every one of us. Every single time you or I sin, we remove ourselves from the authority of God to do whatever I want to do. Well, Jesus comes and he is born and he lives and he submits himself in humility to obey. We see him openly displaying his obedience to the Father and the humility this requires as he goes down in front of this crowd of people, walks in the river when he is sinless, just to identify with and represent humanity, and agrees to being dunked in the dirty Jordan and coming up. And so he even points out this reality when he says, let it be so now. There will come a day when the father elevates the son, and he is then seen to be and known to be who he really is, the judge and the ruler over all. And every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. And in Philippians, God the Father tells us he will exalt the Son. We see it put on display in the book of Revelation. The Son is exalted. He is the one who comes forth in power and majesty. But in this time and in this season, he says, I'm going to live in this humble obedience to the Father. In Philippians 2, it unpacks multiple steps of his humble obedience. It says that he humbled himself and he became a man. Just the sheer fact that he did not seize or, as the language says, hold on to fiercely his role of deity, but was willing to become a man and voluntarily set aside the use of certain of his divine attributes. He never became less than God. That's why I say he's truly man and truly God. But when he became a man, he gave up the use of those. So Jesus the baby cried to be fed cried to be changed, learned to speak, learned to walk and to talk. The one who made wood to exist learned from his earthly father how to work wood as a carpenter. That is astounding humility. It's shocking. Closest I can come is I remember one time going with my father to Lowe's. My dad was a master electrician. Um, I've told you enough about my dad. He literally could fix anything and everything. I, I, would, <laughs> I would imitate a sound my car was making over the phone to Kentucky, and he would diagnose it. So I remember one time we went to Lowe's, and we were picking up something, and this, this guy comes up, and we were in the electrical aisle, and he begins to wax eloquent to my father about all the things we need. And I just watched my dad just stand there and listen. Patiently. And the whole time as a kid, I remember thinking, you don't know who you're talking to. My dad knows all this. And my dad just endured it. And I saw him be willing to be humble and to just receive it. And we walked out, I'm like, Dad, why didn't you just tell that guy who you were and what you need to do? And my dad said, For what reason? Why do I need to declare to him who I am? He wanted to help. 
And my dad told me that's what you should do in humility. Sometimes you take on the role of the student when you could be the teacher. And that's okay. That's the closest I can come to watching what Jesus is living here. And it doesn't even compare, does it? The one who, if he takes his mind off of us for one second, as one professor had said it, we cease to exist and no one cares that we weren't even here. Because by him, all things exist and they consist. They are held together. And he humbles himself. And he becomes a man. But Philippians goes further and says that he then humbles himself to die, to be willing to die, to experience the moment of labored breathing and then the shutting down of his physical body and the torment of death. He's willing to humble himself, but not just death, a humiliating death, hanging naked on a cross in front of a crowd of people while being mocked by them. This is humility. His ministry of humility was so that he could identify with us. And he was obeying the Father in this identification. And so in this moment, he walks down to the Jordan to be baptized. We also see his humble obedience put on display here secondarily because what happens when he comes out of the water. In verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately went up from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. There are two passages that God the Father is referencing in that declaration. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, and Psalm 2, verse 7. The first one, just for our purposes here this morning, is from Isaiah 42. Let me read to you from Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 3. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. This is the first, the start of the first of four what we call servant songs in Isaiah. And Isaiah has four of these songs that are all about the Messiah. And all of them point out the servant nature of the Messiah. We now understand it. We fast forward from Isaiah to the Gospels and now to our day. And we understand by servant we're talking about his humanity. The fact that in the triune God, one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that they are assuming roles within the Trinity and the Son is assuming a role of voluntary subordination or submission to the Father. And he does this by becoming truly man. God the Father is declaring this. You are my servant. He didn't have to be. He chose to be. All right, I got 30 seconds for this rabbit trail. 30 seconds. When any of you, as a child, as an employee, as a wife, as a citizen, or as a congregant, demonstrates voluntary submission to someone in authority over you, do you know what you are putting on display? You are putting Jesus on display because you're identifying with him. And you are equal, but you are assuming a voluntary role of submission. It's Jesus-like. 
It's an incredible picture intended to showcase the glory of God. Right submission and right authority demonstrate the Trinity. This is what Jesus is doing. If you ever struggle with, yeah, but Jesus is God, how can I identify with me when I have to answer to this person and that person and this person and that person? And There's times I have to set aside what I would want or what I even think is best or what I desire when I have to do this. In those moments, I actually want you to think back to Christ. Now, because of the culture and the day and the age we live in, I'll just take another 15 seconds and say this, though. You are never called to submit to an abusive authority who is mistreating you in a wicked way and calls you to do sinful things. And if you're in that situation, please come. I would love to have a conversation with you. I'll do everything in my power to assist you, to help you, to serve you, to bring in other authorities to deliver you. But when we are in a right situation, we are called to voluntary submission. It is to image Christ. Jesus is showing that he is truly man both by identifying with us as a man of people and by being a man of humble obedience. But it's not just his humanity that's on display here. There is also his deity. And so if we go back to this moment between Jesus and John, we ask again, what is this deal though? Because Jesus does not need a baptism of repentance. He's never sinned. He's fully righteous. This isn't about him being better than John, just objectively better This is about him being spiritually righteous, and John was spiritually not. John recognized that even if I myself have been baptized and confessed and I follow after God, I still sin. Read Romans chapter 7. Even as a believer, we still sin because we have our sinful flesh in us. And so now to be confronted with what John will later call the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world, to be confronted in this moment with his presence wanting and desiring to be baptized and asking to be baptized, he's confronted with this. And why is this such a struggle? Because he's God. He is righteous. He's not just fully man. He is fully and truly God. It was necessary for the Messiah to be truly God to save us. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5 says it this way. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. We desperately need a righteous and perfect sacrifice. We need a divine righteous one, and this is Jesus. When John uses that phrase, behold the Lamb of God, come to take away the sins of the world, this is recorded for us in the Gospel of John. When he uses that phrasing, that should just ring bells in our mind of Old Testament Passover, where they have the young lamb, they have to check it all over to make sure there's not one spot, not one blemish, there's nothing, nothing wrong with it. It has to be perfect in order to be killed for its blood to stand for our blood, for its life to stand for our life to take our sins upon us. It's only an illustration. It's only an an image that Jesus is the perfect illustration of. So when John says that later in John, it backs up what Matthew is recording for us. Why would Jesus need to be baptized? He's perfectly righteous. We've already answered. He has to be baptized, needs to be baptized to demonstrate his identification with humanity and to demonstrate his humble obedience. But the struggle point also points to his deity. He is the righteous one. He didn't need baptism the way we need baptism. He needed baptism only to demonstrate that we could be baptized in and through him. He's not just righteous, he is the divine son of God. If we go back to this statement that the father makes from heaven, we can see it put on display 
This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And again, he is then quoting from Psalm 2-7. I will declare of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The early Christians understood Psalm 2 as a messianic prophecy. You are my son, today I have begotten you. In Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John, they get thrown into prison for preaching, they later get let out, and they're telling the other believers about this, and they had been commanded, we're going to let you free, but don't preach about Jesus anymore. And in Acts chapter 4, they reference this same moment, this same psalm in Psalm chapter 2. And in Acts 2, 4, 25 through 28, they go and declare that we're going to keep preaching Jesus because he is the Son of God. He is the one who has all kingship and who has all authority. And it all hinges on this verse in this moment. They understood Jesus to be God's son because God the Father declared it to be so from the heavens at his baptism. We needed a powerful deliverer. We are chained in our sin. We are bound by our sin. We are judged and on our way to an eternal hell. We need someone to have the power to break us free. We cannot free ourselves. Remember at times when <clears throat> my children were very, very small, very small, and, and you have a, an infant or a one-year-old throwing a fit. They all do. I did. And sometimes you hold them on your lap and you don't let them down. And that kid will do everything in their power to get down. Everything in the prayer, they will squirm and scream and push. And you hold them, they can't break free. You and I can't break free. I was in school with this kid one time that he fancied himself the next Houdini. I remember he brought a pair of handcuffs into school and he was like, handcuff me and I can get out. So he handcuffed him behind his back. And I don't know if he forgot the trick or the handcuffs didn't work. He couldn't get free. It was pretty funny to watch. We just let him be handcuffed for a while. I mean, until the principal yelled at us and we let him out. But he couldn't break free. You can't break free from your sin. You can't. I can't. Hostages held around the world, supremely now even still held by him, they can't break free. You think they don't want to be free? Sinners cannot break free. They needed a divine one to break them free. They needed a righteous one to break them free. They needed God to break them free. And this is who Jesus is being declared to be, the divine son of God. And then that sets the stage for us to know and understand his true ministry then. And so first of all, Jesus in his ministry is a fulfiller of promises. This is a theme throughout the gospel of Matthew. Time after time after time, he is going to say he fulfilled this, he fulfilled this, he fulfilled this. We already saw four of them just in the first two chapters of the gospel of Matthew. He fulfilled this, and he fulfilled this, and he fulfilled this. What does Jesus say? Let it be so now, verse 15, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is a fulfiller of promises. These are the very first words that Matthew records Jesus saying. The very first thing he wants you to hear. So when you're asking who is Jesus, who is the true Jesus, the very first thing Matthew wants you to know about him. You know, we ask, what is a baby's first words? Commonly, a baby's first words are dada. That's not because they love dada more. 
Just typically, and, and this isn't universal, particularly because they spend so much time with mom. Mom's saying, daddy's going to be home. Dada's coming. Do you want to see dada? Do you want to talk to dada? So that's the word they hear all the time. And you can tell this because when they get to be two, what's their favorite word? No. Because that's the word they hear all the time. And so we, we become defined sometimes by this. I still have videos of my children saying their first words and animal sounds. What does a cow say? What does a donkey say? What does a horse say? All these kinds of, like you, it matters. What are their first words? We think about what are somebody's last words. Jesus, into your hands I commend my spirit. What are his first words? I'm a fulfiller of righteousness. Jesus' ministry is a fulfiller of promises. God makes all kinds of promises. He makes a promise that he's going to send someone to crush the serpent's head. He makes a promise to send someone who's righteous where we're not. He promises someone to be perfectly obedient where we fail. Promises to deliver from the prison of our sin where we can't break the chains or open the doors of our wickedness. When we study Jesus, you will see someone who fulfills every single promise. His ministry is of one who's a fulfiller of promises. I love the fact that God doesn't just make one promise. He literally makes hundreds, some have argued thousands of promises that we see fulfilled in Jesus. It's helpful. Because in my weak heart, I'm so easy and so quick to doubt. Right? You've ever doubted God's love or kindness to you? You ever doubted his faithfulness to you? You're like, no, never. That would be horrors. Well, me and John the Baptist then. We'll just talk for a second. It's so helpful to not have to just say, well, there was this one thing. But there's this, and there's this, and there's this, and you have made me, and you have loved me, and you are with me, and you have guided me, and you've protected me, and at times you've convicted me, and you've punished me even, and you've disciplined me as a loving father, and you have led me by your word, and you've shown me truth about you, and you have moved my heart, and you have given me air to breathe, and a brain that can think, and friends, and family, and compassion, and tenderness, and it's not just one promise. He is the fulfiller. His ministry is of one who fulfills promises. But he's also a new Adam. We'd be wrong if we got through this text and don't mention the presence of the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. He's not a thing. It's a him. It says here, John gives witness to it. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And this is why famously we have this image of a dove. But notice he doesn't say he saw the Holy Spirit as a dove, does he? He says like a dove descending. So we're not even entirely sure what that means. It, it would actually seem to point to, that was the best words that John the Baptist could use to describe this moment, but even he was understanding it doesn't really fully match. What is he really referencing? Genesis chapter 1, and this is part of why it's helpful that Matthew might remember, I pointed out to us in chapter 1, he talks about here's the genesis of the Jesus story. Matthew understood something very deep theologically about Jesus that a lot of Christians don't, and that is that he is a new Adam. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, when God creates the world, he says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. So it's at the very beginning. The darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It is the same language. It is the presence of God at the newness of his creation. It's this glorious moment where it's almost like God is saying, I'm hitting reset 
when I was a kid, we grew up with like old school video games, Atari, and Nintendo. I got a Nintendo uh, 8-bit original system when I, when, I, on my, when I turned 13. In old school video games, you had to blow on them, shake them, stick them in halfway, and like hit the reset button a couple times to get that thing going. This is like God hitting reset. It's like saying, I made it, man messed it up, I'm going to fix it. Paul picks up this same theme later and declares boldly the truth of this theological moment. Therefore, his one trespass led to condemnation for all men. He's talking about the Adam. Adam's sin brings sin into humanity. There is one, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. We're getting the hint, the shadow of this truth to be revealed later. Like the perfection of the first creation when there was no sin in the universe and no sin in the world. There is this Holy Spirit hovering moment of celebrating what God is beginning. That's what this is. The Holy Spirit celebrating what God is beginning. It's the perfection of this second, new, and better Adam who has come to rescue sinners. And lastly, in this moment, there's a profound foreshadowing. Matthew builds a bookends of Jesus' ministry because what does the baptism of Christ represent? Death, burial, and resurrection. And how will it end? Death, burial, and resurrection. We have the shout of the Father celebrating the person of Jesus and the work he's beginning. And it looks forward to another day of celebration of the Father, the day that Jesus is raised from the dead. And it's at the resurrection of Jesus that we see this final culmination of his, the joining, the revealing of his being truly man and truly God. He dies as truly man. He resurrects as truly God. They demonstrate it. They shout it. His baptism is the shouting of his true nature, truly man and truly God. This is what's most important for us to understand because this is the king that we need. We need a king who rescues He's perfectly sinless. I don't know about you, but sometimes the sinlessness of Christ feels overwhelming. He clearly felt overwhelming to his own earthly brothers and sisters because they rejected him until after his death. There's times when I think about who Jesus is and his sinlessness, and I just, it's like it, in, my, in my fleshly thinking, it makes me just feel so much worse. His humility, and I think about my pride, it's discouraging. His obedience, which is terrifying because I see how easily I disobey. And so that's why you have a people like a Je a Je Thomas Jefferson or modern culture who wants to just make, Je just make Jesus a good moral teacher instead of the perfect righteous son of God that declares to us that we are sinners and we need him. They want a Jesus that they can pick and choose what they want to follow instead of being humbly repentant in front of the sinless son of God. But the king we really need is a king who rescues us, each of those broken people that we recognized at the, at the beginning, Abraham and Jacob and Gideon, Samson and David, they are broken men, every single one of them. None of them at face value would be the kind of people you or I want. Just like at face value, we understand we're not the kind of people other people should want either. Least of all, God. Every one of those men is in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. 
is God celebrates their belief. Faith that he gave them, and yet he still celebrates it. In lives that are ultimately lived for his glory instead of their own, even in the midst of their failures. You know what they needed? They needed a perfect king. They're just like us. And so Jesus covers their sin with his righteousness. He boldly declares the truth about who they were so that we understand that God is on mission using broken people, not perfect people. Because there are no perfect people anyway. And so we recognize that even as God has rescued them, and in Hebrews celebrates the faith that he gives them, so God also can rescue you and I. As has been famously said, you don't get cleaned up to get baptized. You don't get cleaned up to get saved. You get saved, and your baptism declares what God has already done. But he's also a king who is patient. We need the kind of king who understands the human condition. We are fickle people. We're full of ups and downs, sorrow and joy, hopes and dreams, disappointments. And one of the best examples of that is John the Baptist. Leaps as a baby in his mother's womb. Hears stories growing up from Elizabeth and Zechariah of who he is and his mission and who his cousin is. Stands in the Jordan and says, I shouldn't baptize you. You should baptize me. You're more righteous. Hears the thundering voice of God declaring, this is my son. Sees the, the spirit of God hovering like a dove. Later says, this is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. This is the one who I spoke of that I'm not fit to carry his shoes or tie his sandals. But at his death moment, the doubts creep in and he sends word, is it really you? In Matthew 11, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? Jesus, what is Jesus' response this this truly man and truly God king, what is his response to your doubts and your struggles and your failures? Does he respond? Great. Way to make it all look good, John the Baptist. Look at how you're messing it up. How many times are you harsher in judgment of yourself than what God is? How many times do you read or think about Jesus and maybe you want to stop thinking about who the real Jesus is because you have been warped in your thinking and you think God sits on his throne constantly irritated and frustrated with you as his child. He's so perfect, he must be so annoyed, I'm already off on my daily Bible reading plan. How does he respond? Go and tell John. Go and tell him all the things that I'm doing. Blind are being made to see and lame are being made to walk. Demons are being cast out. And then let me tell you something about John so you don't judge him. He is the greatest prophet this world has ever known. Jesus doesn't just comfort John with truth and deal patiently with him. He also defends him against anyone else that would accuse him. Because you know who Jesus is? King Jesus, he is the one who silences the accuser of the brethren. In his perfection as truly God, and in his sinlessness as truly man, he as yet deals with us in patience, in kindness, and love. We need a king who tastes death, but also resurrection. We need a king who's patient with our weaknesses. We need a king who isn't frustrated with our fears and our failings and our doubts but who understands, and he does. 
If we will be blessed by the ministry of King Jesus, we have to know the true King Jesus. Do you know him? Father, thank you for the declaration of the truth of your son. Thank you for your kind patience with us. But thank you most of all for sending him, for him coming, for him living a perfect righteous life, dying a sinless death, and raising again. Father, I ask that you would continue to do this good work that you have begun in each one of us who know you. And Father, for any who don't know you this morning, Lord, may they be moved, may they be drawn, may they be pulled by the power of the Spirit to confess, to repent, and to believe, and to then know this King Jesus. We pray this in his majestic name. In Jesus' name, amen.